Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It's wonderful to see you all today. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, I am Andrew Zoko. I'm the director of student ministries here at Ivanrest Church, and that means I'm almost always here on Sunday mornings, um, but it's a special honor to be here with you today in this capacity. Now, in 1966, Shusaku Endo penned one of the most challenging but important novels that I've had the privilege of reading, a, a fairly short little book by the name of Silence. Silence is a story that follows two Portuguese Jesuit priests in the 17th century on a mission to the people of Japan. Now, at, at this point in history in the 17th century, the Japanese government had been cracking down on the practice of Christianity. So the priests' very presence in the country meant danger, extreme danger for them and for the communities that they came to serve. And so when they arrive there, they're able to, to do some of their priestly duties in those communities. But eventually, as you may have guessed, they are caught and apprehended by the Japanese government and taken into custody. And our, our main character, Father Rodriguez, in custody, he's, he witnesses numerous acts of, um, of persecution, of martyrdom, and of different acts of torture. And he sees these atrocities done to his fellow believers for simply practicing their faith. And upon seeing these horrors, Father Rodriguez begins to doubt. And he begins to question his faith and question God himself asking some of the most profound and pertinent questions that can be asked even today by all of us. In one particularly gut-wrenching scene near the end of the book, Father Rodriguez has just been forced to spend a night in a dank, dark cell surrounded by other cells in which he can hear the moans and the groans of fellow Christians as they're being ceaselessly tortured throughout the entire evening. And after he wakes up the next morning, and maybe has a chance to process this, he internally cries out to God and he says, Lord, it is now that you should break the silence. You must not remain silent. Prove that you are justice, that you are goodness, that you are love. You must say something to show the world that you are the august one. Face to face with, with evil, with immense pain, Rodriguez asks a question that has maybe gone through each of our minds at some point or another. Where is God in the midst of our anguish? Why does God allow the evil that we see in the world? And for Father Rodriguez, the notion of suffering to the extent and of the kind that he had been seeing didn't fit within his understanding of who God was. And so when he is confronted with that and forced to think through this sort of evil, his previously held theology falls short and his faith just about falls apart. And we witness a man deeply struggling to reconcile suffering or evil with an all-powerful, all-loving God. And it seems like this, this tension is often a struggle for many of us still today. It's more than likely that there are those of us in this room whose faith has perhaps been stunted or maybe even destroyed by this very predicament. There are maybe more of us who can think of somebody that we love who has wrestled with this very idea and was not able to come out on the other side. Now, of course, suffering should never, ever be trivialized. The pain of suffering can be intense and absolutely devastating. 
evil should never be trivialized or ignored. The injustices and the atrocities that we see on a nearly daily basis are heartbreaking, and they can be faith-shaking. And what we see in silence is a powerful example of a man wrestling with this issue and asking the tough questions and seeking to reconcile an issue with a theology that had not had to grapple with that quite yet. But this issue is not a new one. This is not something that only people in the last few centuries have tried to grapple with and wrestle through. Men and women throughout all of human history have tried to tease this issue out. And these questions, this struggle is actually reported quite frequently within the pages of Scripture itself. And Scripture demonstrates this sort of questioning, and in a lot of ways it gives us both permission to voice these concerns to God and language with which we can cry out to him. Again, these these questions are all over the place throughout Scripture, including in a a short little book that you've maybe never read, that you've maybe never even heard a sermon on, even if you spent your entire life in the church. It's this tiny three-chapter book called Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And to be honest, I will probably go back and forth throughout the morning, so just kind of bear with me and give me a little bit of grace when I switch out. And we're going to be spending the rest of the morning in this book, really working through its, it in its entirety to get the context. And so you're more than welcome to follow along with me from the beginning as we kind of bounce through. But our main focus text will be chapter 3, which is found on page 765 in the Bibles on the back. So, the book of Habakkuk is categorized into what is commonly referred to as a minor prophet. In the Old Testament, there are 12 of these so-called minor prophets, and all of them have some incredible, albeit very difficult things to say. And that difficulty could be the reason why you don't often hear sermons on them, and I maybe should have taken a hint from those who have gone before me, but it's a little bit too late to to back out now, so we're going to keep driving forward. So, Habakkuk. It's a book that's set up against the decline and fall of the the kingdom of Judah. Basically, at this point, Israel had been split into two kingdoms. And the, the northern kingdom retained the name Israel, and the southern kingdom took on the name Judah. And by the time Habakkuk comes on the scene as a prophet, the people of Judah were worshiping other gods, they were perverting justice, and they were basically doing everything God had commanded them not to do as his people. And so it's this disastrous scene where Habakkuk comes on the stage to address. And in these short three chapters, we are amazingly tuned into what is essentially a conversation between the prophet and God himself, where the prophet brings these two complaints to God, and in each instance actually receives a reply. And then it ends with this this beautiful poem or song in Habakkuk 3 where the prophet hasn't had a chance to process these conversations, to reflect on who God is, and then he writes this miraculous thing. And so to understand chapter 3, we have to go and start from the beginning of the book. And so in chapter 1, we read the very first complaint of Habakkuk in which the prophet looks around and he sees the moral and spiritual decay of of his uh, of God's people and he cries out to God for justice in a very similar way as Father Rodriguez. He says, "How long, Lord, must I call for help but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing?" And I read this question and, and I and I can only think of of how relatable it is. 
And if you're anything like me, you might take a look around at the world today and wonder, how long, Lord, will millions be allowed to die simply because they don't have access to clean water? How long, Lord, will so many be enslaved in sex trafficking? How long, Lord, will children and teens be bullied to the point that they feel suicide is the only option? How long, Lord, will racism be allowed to infect hearts and minds and and create division, oppression, and the perpetuation of violence? How long, Lord, do we have to witness another mass shooting where life is needlessly and and, uh, pointlessly taken as we saw in Texas just yesterday? How long, Lord, how long? It's a question that we maybe know all too well. But when God replies to the prophet, he doesn't give him an answer that that maybe helps in that moment. It's definitely not an answer that the prophet expected to hear or wanted to hear. See, Yahweh replies with a declaration that he is going to use the evil nation Babylon to punish the violence and injustice in Judah. This, This could not have been how Habakkuk saw the conversation going. Right? Habakkuk knew who he was, and he knew who Israel was. They were God's chosen people. Yahweh had specifically called them out as the main recipient of God's blessing, and they were to be God's primary instrument to bless the rest of the world. Yahweh had delivered them specifically and personally from oppression and from the hands of their enemies time and time again, and yet here, The Lord basically says that the prophet doesn't have to worry about the moral and spiritual decay of Judah, not because God is going to bring about a moral and spiritual revival to the kingdom, but because he's going to use an even more immoral and idolatrous nation to destroy them, to send them into exile. It would have been almost unthinkable. And so it's understandable, really, that the prophet cries out in response, What? How could this be, God? But he's, he's a prophet, so he uses much more poetic and articulate language than that. And so he actually says, You, Lord, have been appointed by them, meaning, or have appointed them, meaning the Babylonians, to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And it seems like he's, he's kind of, you know, buttering God up, complimenting him a little bit. And now it's almost like there's a, a but that he inserts into this complaint. And he says, why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? We see Habakkuk lamenting, expressing anger, complaining to God for confronting and punishing injustice with what the prophet can only perceive as greater injustice. And he wonders how God could possibly do something like this, and especially to his own people. But as we've already established at this point, this is a a conversation. And so God now has a chance to reply. And if we boil down his response, essentially he replies and he says, Trust me. I am God. I am the holy and righteous one. I will use Babylon, but they too will get what they have coming to them. Their evil will not go unpunished. You, Habakkuk, you and others like you, the righteous ones, will live by faith. And that phrase is is key. The righteous will live by faith. It's key for a person in Habakkuk's situation. It's key for anyone seeking to reconcile a good and all-powerful God with the presence of evil and suffering. 
for Habakkuk, for a man waiting for deliverance, waiting for God to step in and act against the evil that he is surrounded by. He must live by faith, meaning he must have a dependent trust in God, trusting that God is who he has revealed himself to be. And that's, that's it. That's the, the extent of this, this two-way conversation that we have in front of us. And so we come finally to the third and final chapter of Habakkuk. The prophet's last recorded words, his, his final response to God, if you will, taking on, again, the form of a, of a prayer or a song. And he says this, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed in his steps. He stood and the earth shook. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. But he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the stream? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it's clear from reading this that something profound has happened to the man who was complaining to God in the first two chapters. I'll read that, that note that he is now waiting patiently, and I can't help but wonder, like, really, Habakkuk, patiently? There was nothing patient about your first two complaints. So what has happened? What has made Habakkuk go from a man who questioned the very nature and character of God to a man whose only strength is in the Lord? What happened? Did he get an answer? Yes. Was it an answer that he wanted to hear or an answer that he liked? Certainly not. Have the circumstances changed? Has God stepped in to make his, his life and, his, and what he's seeing around him better? Absolutely not. If anything, his circumstances are even worse than when he initially began his complaint. 
What the prophet describes in verse 17 is absolute devastation. The fig tree doesn't bud. The grapes are not growing. The olive crops have failed. There are no, there's no food in the fields. There are no sheep or cattle in the pens. For someone in an agrarian society, this is as bad as it could possibly get. Our modern equivalent could only be something like the stock market has completely crashed. The federal reserves are burning. I lost my job. I'm living on the street. I have no idea where my next meal will come from, but I will trust in the Lord. I will rejoice. I will have joy. I will praise you, God, for you are my strength. So what happened? God came out, and he revealed himself to his prophet. Bit by bit and and piece by piece, Habakkuk rediscovered the character and nature of God. In this final prayer, Habakkuk is seen remembering and recounting God's faithfulness to the Israelites throughout history. And this record of Yahweh's mighty works of old fill the prophet with both awe and with hope. The things that Habakkuk was seeing around him in his own day were causing him immense distress, and understandably so. But God granted him the ability to see beyond his immediate circumstances and through to the Holy One, who is himself just and righteous and good, so that Habakkuk might wait patiently and live by faith. Like Habakkuk, like Father Rodriguez, we have a lot of questions when bad things happen. Why now? Why would God let this happen? Why there? Why me? Why, why my family? These questions are common. They're, they're natural, and in a lot of ways, they're good and healthy to ask and voice. But the sad reality is we might not always know why. This side of the new heavens and the new earth, sometimes we just can't possibly know why. But we know who God is. We know that God is holy, just, and righteous. We know that God is gracious, merciful, and loving. We know that God has never failed and he's not going to start now. And that is exactly what Habakkuk is getting to. He can't see where this is going. He can't possibly comprehend how or why it would be that God would use an evil nation to set right the injustices taking place in Judah. He cannot fathom why this would be or how God would let this happen. But he knows who God is. He knows what God has done in the past and what that means for his present and for his future. He knows that God delivered Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians, that he revealed himself to Israel on Mount Sinai, and that he's been faithful to Israel every step of the way despite Israel's constant failure. And because he knows these things, he's able to say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior face-to-face with with exile and starvation and slavery, Habakkuk is able to find his strength in God. The prophet was carried through these times by faith, not because his faith itself was strong, not because he had an extraordinary measure of faith, but because the object of his faith, the one in whom he had faith, was the Holy One, the Almighty, the Alpha and Omega Yahweh, the one who has power over all of creation, the one who, who causes the very earth to tremble in his presence. For Habakkuk, for the authors of the Psalms, for the apostles and the disciples, God himself is a source of their joy, of their hope, of their confidence, and their faith. Habakkuk doesn't rejoice because God made him a little bit happier than he would have been otherwise. Habakkuk doesn't rejoice because God immediately made his circumstances better. He simply witnessed his faithful 
creator. Alistair Begg describes this as a radically different view of the universe that we are able to have as followers of Christ. He says, to be a Christian is a mind-altering experience. It's not simply the addition of some spiritual dimension to our already fairly good life. It is not the inclusion of a God that simply exists to fill the inconsequential gaps that we can't handle by virtue of our own reason. No, it is to fall down before the display of God's splendor. To look at our world, even as Habakkuk does here, and to realize that he has given us this great panorama of God's intervention. Habakkuk gives us a framework for this radically different view of the universe. A lens that sees God's intervention in this world to set things right in the past as an assurance for him and for us today that because God has intervened, because God has been faithful, he will be faithful and he will set all things right. And if Habakkuk's short little prayer gives us a beautiful panorama of God's intervention throughout history, the gospel is the most magnificent, stunning, awe-inspiring vista our eyes could ever behold. For in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we see the mightiest act of God's intervention, which rattled and shook the whole of the cosmos. In the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, we see God intervening incomparably, demonstrating his power and authority over all things. At the cross, we see the fulfillment of Habakkuk's plea for God to, in wrath, remember mercy. The cross is the most remarkable intervention of all. For in that universe-shifting event, the Messiah, the God-man, suffered greater than we could possibly imagine. And it's through that suffering that he defeated sin, evil, and death itself and stripped these things of any true power that they have over those whose faith is in the Lord. So when we look at the cross, we can be assured that our suffering doesn't mean that we are abandoned. Our suffering does not mean that we are not loved by God or that we, we don't have enough faith. The evil in this world does not mean that God is silent or has nothing to say about that evil or no power to do anything about it. It can't possibly mean that. For the one who lived a perfect life, a life of perfect submission to God's will, and who demonstrated perfect love with and for God, suffered more greatly than any of us could fathom. See, ours is a God who would rather take upon himself the suffering, that our, uh, the suffering of the world than allow sin and evil to continue. Ours is a God who bore our burdens and is therefore able to provide us with comfort and hope in the midst of our suffering. Because he doesn't just merely sympathize with us as a detached bystander, but he's familiar with our sufferings. This is the glory that Father Rodriguez finally comes to know. For God revealed himself through a missionary. And he, he assured the prophet that his Lord was not silent, but that he suffered beside him. Ours is a God that is the great and perfect counselor, capable of empathizing, for he knows what it is to suffer. Ours is a God who intervened on our behalf in the most glorious redemptive act in all of history. And his perfect faithfulness in the past assures us of continued faithfulness today and in days to come. And it should convince us, even when we cannot possibly see how, that there will be a day where there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, when every tear will be wiped away. And knowing that this is the case, that this is our hope, may we be people who say with Habakkuk, though the fig tree doesn't bud, 
though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, though the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. My, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Let's pray. Heavenly and gracious Father, make us like your prophet Habakkuk. Let our joy not be based on circumstances, but rooted in the hope that you have given us through your mighty acts of redemption and deliverance throughout history. Let us cling to you as our only source of strength, trusting that you are mighty, holy, all-powerful, and loving. Lord, it's in you and you alone that we find our hope. Sustain us in that faith in the midst of the sufferings that are inevitable in this fallen world and bring about your kingdom in its fullness that we might suffer no more but know the fullness of joy in your presence. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.